Hey, what's going on? This is the Saturday Down South podcast presented to you by Texas Pete. I'm Connor O'Kara. Well, how's Christmas? It was amazing, man. It was super cool. Um, I think we've kind of like gotten away from like the stereotypical like nuclear family Christmas a little bit. So I got to see the Ogburns, which was cool. I got to see like my nephew on that side. I got to see the Sandlins, my stepdad's family. And I just got done uh, with the Cajuns. Uh, I got to see my nephew on that side's like truck that he put like the lift and the airbags in himself. And he was like geeking out about that. That was super cool. And then you got to have your first Christmas, you know, with your little family. And so we're all growing, we're all getting older and it's, it's a bunch of different Christmases now. It's you're you're exactly right. It is kind of crazy how Christmas changes so quickly too. You think about Christmas even as recently as five years ago. You're like, oh, I do a lot of different stuff now. Yeah, it was very mm-hmm. very different Christmas uh, in our household uh, as well. Got to take a little trip down to Dunedin, planned out you know future retirement homes. We're scoping out the air. No, I'm kidding. Um, sort of kidding, but mostly kidding. Uh, and, you, and, you strike me as a 40 year retirement plan guy. Like you got your plot of land picked out. You got your swing set picked out. <laughs> mentally. I am financially. Mm-hmm. I am not, uh, very right. much not. Yeah. I, I wish, but, uh, yeah, I got to take a nice little trip. Uh, Claire's first time, uh, sleeping and not in her own bed. So that was, mm. um, a, a new experience, but a good experience, a really great experience. So I got to spend a couple of days there. I, I love me some Dunedin and especially this time of year. So festive and, uh, it was nice. So yeah, didn't fly home this year, kind of planned family gatherings around Christmas, but not on Christmas. So didn't have to deal with sitting at MCO for three hours with a crying baby, which would just be the absolute worst. Um, so yeah, See, we, you're doing uh, your part though. We've joked about that for a long time about the MCO airport is a nightmare because of all the crying kids going to and fro Disney world. You did your part and did not add to that. And I thank you for the random single 20 year old travelers that we all was were going, why is this baby crying to my ear? <laughs> just doing what we can, just trying to provide a service to the people. Uh, look, and Claire is a, a, a great baby in terms mm-hmm. of, of crying and, and not overly fussy, but yeah, I mean, she's, you know, she's teething right now. She's kind of going through it a little bit. So we're not necessarily in a position where, you know, we want to subject people to that, but eventually we'll, we will definitely bite the bullet. Um, but yeah, Christmas was great, really low key, uh, at, at our household, you know, just opening presents for her really, really nice time. Well, you got me a gift. So good. So good that I want to share with the audience. So it is my great pleasure to say that here is Brian Baumgartner a.k.a. Kevin from The Office, wishing my family a very Merry Christmas. Hello, Connor. Connor. Hi. Connor, it's me. No, not Ashton Kutcher. Listen, Will reached out to me, says uh, he's a good friend of yours, You and uh, the SEC football podcast co-host... That's freaking huge. That's what she said. And uh, he wanted me to wish you a ho, 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 Merry Christmas to you. Also, congratulations. I heard you just became a dad to Claire, to love's eternal glory for that baby. Um, Best wishes to you. But here's the problem. I hear you're from Chicago and you're a big Bears fan. Let's be honest, Connor. The Bears still suck. The Bears still suck. Yeah, I'm a I'm a Packers fan. Sorry. Sorry, not sorry. Anyway, best wishes to you 
and to Lauren and to your chubby cat, Rudy, for a very happy holidays uh, and a year ahead filled with new adventures, with love, with laughter, of course. But, Connor, most importantly, a year filled with chili. Nice. Just don't spill it. Unbelievable. Um, like one of the coolest gifts I've ever gotten. I watched it with the biggest smile on my face, laughed out loud at about seven different parts. Give, give the people that the peel behind the onion as to what went into that thought process. Because for those who have been listening to the show for a while, you know what a big fan of the office I am like most human beings on the face of the earth. <laughs> um, and to put that together, man, I salute just job well done. No notes whatsoever. Well, yeah, man. No, I appreciate it. I, um, I already kind of did the dad thing, you know, last year. So I was like, you know, something near and dear to, um, to Connor's heart is uh, his boy Kevin with the chili. Such a relatable moment, right? And like with Cameo, you kind of give him a breakdown. So I'm like, you know, I do social media. I'm really good at post copy. So I was able to fit a bunch of stuff in there in a few words. That I think even at the end, I put like, why use many word when few word were good or whatever. And he was so cool. He delivered it like on Christmas Eve too. Um, and so, yeah, that was a super cool process. I was telling you, I was getting kind of nervous because he just kept dumping on the Bears. And I was like, I hope that doesn't make him sad. But you're like, no, I know he's a Packers fan. <laughs> makes makes it even better knowing that he's a Packers fan. Um, and, and there's there's a little bit of that that jab in there. Um, I knew that was coming. The second he had that long pause, it's like, all right, here's 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 where it's going to come in. I'm, I'm going to get some something about, about the Bears and, and understandably so. But uh, unbelievable gift. I've never gotten a cameo before. That was a, hmm. a, a first time for me. So... Uh, it, it made my day. I've sent that around to a bunch of different people, saved it on my phone. When I need a little pick me up, I'm just going to mm-hmm. fire it up and just be like, I'm going to let, I'm going to let Kevin give me, give me, uh, the, the, the boost that I need to be able to, to get through this day. So, there you uh, go. much, yeah. much appreciated, man. Absolutely loved it. All right. Uh, plan for today. We have a question with Kirby versus Saban that I think is worth asking. We have Peach Bowl CEO Gary Stoken. He's going to join us in a bit to talk about that game and really more about the future of college football as a whole from his perspective. Someone that has a lot of thoughts on that from his vantage point. And then we're going to close with Lad of the Week. But first, Will, bowl season for the SEC is finally, finally here. I love it that we don't necessarily have to get right back in the mix like December 16th. We usually get a few weeks off for the mm-hmm. SEC, and it's kind of like, all right, now post-Christmas, that's when the real bowl games start. But we are finally here. Texas A&M will be playing Oklahoma State in the Texas Bowl. Oklahoma State is a two-point favorite. The over-under I have is 29 touches for Ollie Gordon the second. I The second, go, going by the second is much cooler, is much cooler than going by junior. And I realize yep. as a big Ken Griffey Jr. fan, I say that doesn't apply to everyone, but if you can go by the second, I think that's the move, right? Yeah. You're, you're implying I, that I someone's going to be a third. I think that matters too because with Ken Griffey, we knew Ken Griffey. So it's like Ken Griffey Jr. He couldn't do Ken Griffey the second, right? It's like you knew Ken Griffey. This is the junior. The second is like a – it's like a volume two, you know? It's true. It, it, it really is. It's like 2.0 – Maybe I'm going to be better. I'm I'm going to be better than the first version of this. There will be a third version of this, but mm-hmm. great self awareness from from Ollie Gordon, the uh, Oklahoma State tailback. He is coming back for next season, which it's weird to think for those who saw that announcement. I think it came on Christmas Eve. 
it's weird to think that we need announcements for first and second year players in that spot. <laughs> Like you would think, oh, maybe he's deciding between going to the NFL draft or coming back for another year. No, he's just deciding whether or not he wants to transfer or come back to Oklahoma mm -hmm. State, even though he can't go to the NFL yet. But yeah, today's era of, of tampering and transfer portal, all that stuff, you just can't assume anything. He already guaranteed that the, the Heisman is coming to Stillwater next year. So. And he had to announce it before the bowl game, so they, you know Texas A&M would stop calling him. So it was probably good he got all of his affairs in order before the bowl game. <laughs> yeah, you know, a little hundred dollar handshake after after <laughs> the game, something like that. You're exactly right. Get the affairs in order. Take care of business. You don't want anything like that happening. If you're Oklahoma State and you were to lose that guy to Texas A&M after playing him in the bowl game, you'd be like, "Well, that was dumb. We have no right. one to blame but ourselves. That was that was really really stupid." So yeah, look, he's. I assume going to get a full workload. A full workload for Ali Gordon is 29 touches. Um, since mid-October, he has had at least 29 scrimmage touches in six of eight games. That is a lot. When they were getting waxed by South Alabama, Gordon was third on that team in the pecking order, at least in terms of the backfield carries. But that's kind of the beauty of college football is that it can yield an Ollie Gordon, a mid-season story like that. You can go from being a guy that – kind of only the diehards know about to becoming a massive household name in just a few weeks, really a couple months is when he started to explode. They figured out that he is very good, very good, should give him the football. And that's why Oklahoma State became the team that made it to the Big 12 championship and not the team that just got its bl doors blown off week after week. Uh, Realizing yeah, the that your second year tailback is the far and away best player on your offense and giving him a ton of carries. A wild concept for us as SEC fans. Oh, who's that a dig at? Who's that a dig at? ETN. Um, oh, yes, Will. Good call. God, you're, you're faster than I am today. Post-Christmas, we're shaking off the rust. That will not be the last Trevor ETN reference of this podcast. I, I guarantee that. Um, yeah, you're exactly right. And this is a, a spot where you would expect Oklahoma State to have their offense to continue to run through him. Even the, the play action stuff that they do, it, it's all about him. It's all predicated on him. Texas, with that loaded defensive line, they made him pretty much ineffective in the Big 12 championship. He didn't have a run of 10 yards in that game. Texas A&M will be trying to do the same thing, but instead of being a team like Texas that was playing for a playoff berth, you've got a team with probably as much roster turnover as anyone in the sport, in at least in bowl season, trying to play through it. The list of portal entries for A&M, if you haven't kept track, if you don't know it exactly it, it is yet or where it's stopped, uh, here's just kind of the rundown of some of the notables that uh, have already hit the portal for A&M. Evan Stewart, Tyreek Chappelle, Fadil Diggs, Jake Johnson, Max Johnson, Walter Nolan, LT Overton, Jarden Gilbert, who's off to LSU. Anaya Smith opted out, as did Layden Robinson, McKinley Jackson. And just in case that wasn't enough, the All-American Edron Cooper, he opted out. He's off to the NFL draft. So you don't even have the potential for like an Ollie Gordon Cooper type matchup uh, that that's gone as well. Mm -hmm. It's a lot. It's, it's a lot of guys to be to be missing uh, in a postseason game. The good news for AM, Elijah Robinson, he stayed on to be the interim coach after he got the defensive coordinator job to join Fran Brown staff at Syracuse. So continuity, I, that's kind of all AM has in that department. And maybe it's going to be. The difference, guys absolutely love Elijah Robinson. Very much respected in that locker room. And a very different scenario than like, oh, you're going to have 
you know, the special teams coach or something like that, try and step in and handle the game plan and do all those things. You know, he was the interim coach down the stretch. So uh, that probably is playing at least somewhat of a factor as to why Oklahoma State is only favored by two points. I mean, that's that's not a whole lot, especially right. consider Oklahoma State had more wins in the regular season. I also think Jalen Henderson, he he played very well down the stretch, and that's impacting this spread. They scored 51 against Mississippi State, 38 against Abilene Christian, big deal, and then obviously 30 at LSU uh, in a game in which, look, A&M, for all the things that you could say negatively about them, they gave LSU what it could handle in that football game and showed a pulse and at least made Jaden Daniels put on his cape and have to pull off a comeback in the second half. So credit that A&M offense for doing that. I've got a take that I'm interested in your in your opinion on as someone who has watched a lot of Max Johnson play football. In a game like this, I think I would rather have Jalen Henderson as my starter than Max Johnson. I'm not saying that means Jalen Henderson is a better player. Uh, I like Max Johnson a lot. I, I think if you know what you're getting out of a player like Max Johnson, you're better for it and you can kind of build an offense around him and at least do some things and stay afloat. But if you're AM, you don't know how effective the offensive line will be. You need somebody that can make things happen with their legs. Plus, if you're going to be down a bunch of those like first string pass catching options, it might actually be this strange benefit to have the guy that's been taking the reps with the second and third teamers for the majority of the season instead of having a first team quarterback who all of a sudden is looking around like, I don't know any of you guys. <laughs> I have no idea who this, this true freshman is here, this third team guy here, this scout team guy, whatever it is. Um, look, I, I think that this is an interesting spot for him. I think we need to be able to separate two things. Two things. Do I believe that it is dumber than ever to make sweeping declarations based on bowl outcomes? Yes. At least in non-playoff bowls. Yes, absolutely. Unless that, your team wins. Don't forget. Well, I mean, that's if you at home viewer, if your team wins, that was legitimate. If they True. lose, it doesn't count. That's the best part. <laughs> Just like how in recruiting, if you get uh, if your team gets someone to flip at the 11th hour, it's because your coaching staff has the right culture. If yep. somebody from your team loses a recruit at the 11th hour to another team, it's because they paid him and they're scummy mm -hmm. and they are the absolute worst. Yeah, same thing. Same thing. 100%. Um, look, I stand by the notion that. There is, there is, there should be different, more nuanced ways to look at this, right? The hay is kind of in the barn with what a team has done and using a bowl game to say this team was this good or that good. It just doesn't really make a lot of sense anymore. Maybe I think at one time it kind of did, but yeah, like if AM loses this game, it won't be because they had guys out there who didn't want to be there. They, mm -hmm. those guys have already moved on. They have already right. hit the you, portal. They literally could have left. That's the deal. There's no more, uh, those guys aren't motivated. The motivated guys are at another school reading their syllabus right now. Yeah. Like they're, they're already on campus being like, all right, which parties I going to go to this night? Which, you know, what, mm -hmm. what, how much do I got to dig into the playbook here? You know, all those things. But if A&M is looking at this saying, okay, well, we have nothing to play for this. This is stupid. I will push back on that. If they lose this game, it's going to be because their guys out there got outplayed, or maybe they'll have a couple of costly turnovers that are the difference. And we'll look up and say, all right, AM wasn't as good with the team that they put out there in this 
game that eh, probably feels a little bit more like an exhibition to see who's going to be good for this next season's type team. That's not me saying that this is some Dan Mullen situation where our season ended this date. Um, you still have to go out there and you still should have a reason to want to play against quality competition. And if you're going to be on national TV at nine o'clock at night on the East coast, which my God, why are they starting this game so late? Um, look, that's, that's reality. You should have a little bit of pride uh, in that area. But I bring that up because I think A&M and Tennessee are the leaders in the clubhouse for the SEC, where if they lose, you will hear the anti-SEC crowd talking about, oh, the lack of motivation to trying to mock those teams. And you yeah. will hear, you'll probably hear more of that than you will the pro-SEC crowd using it as an excuse. And maybe some will, but I, I think that's always kind of overblown a bit. But just something to keep in mind with the, the motivation. Same crowd that was factor. celebrating about the SEC uh, missing the playoff, by the way. And now we got two SEC teams in the playoff. <laughs> Well, if you're including Texas, you can't include Texas as an SEC team yet. You can't do that yet. Not against, I can. You can't no, stop me. No. Uh -uh. no. Look. If, yeah, they play a the Big 12 schedule. I see what you're saying. Yeah. If if you are in a spot where at the end of the season, you're, you're talking about, all right, what do we have coming back for next season? Then you say, oh, two playoff teams that are coming back for next season. If you're the SEC, you can throw that up. I have no right, problem with exactly. that. But yeah, it's it's still it still only counts as one, unless of course the deck is just stacked against the SEC in bowl season, and you just you know the, the SEC will just ride Texas's success or failures, depending on which one it is. But yeah, um, anyway, that's a long-winded way of saying I'm taking Oklahoma State to cover and win by a touchdown. Although I don't feel particularly good about it with that line staying at two, despite the fact that Ollie Gordon is ex Ollie Gordon the second, my bad, the second yeah. is expected to be at full go for this one. 100%. And yeah, back to your point about um back to your point about Jalen Henderson versus Max Johnson. It's funny. It's like the more uh tumultuous A&M season gets, the bigger and stronger their quarterback gets. Like they started with Wigman who is like pro size guy, not calling him a small guy, but a young guy. Guy still could use a season or two in a weight program, right? You get Max Johnson, oh man. And that was what I said about Max Johnson. Oh, he's 66, he's mobile, he can move. Da -da -da -da. Well, he kind of lost the Alabama game because he couldn't move as well as I thought, right? Well, now you got Jalen Henderson, who's even bigger than Max Johnson. <laughs> and it's like they just keep pulling out bigger and bigger quarterbacks as their season gets rockier. <laughs> and it's like, huh. And you're right. It's like that was that was one of the games I was able to catch up on. I actually was watching that at a restaurant in Amsterdam as well, the A and LSU game. And it's like, yeah, that guy can move the ball, especially on third down. And, and you know how much I love those offenses that – have the mobile quarterback that can get four or five yards at a time, kind of the old Utah system. Um, but yeah, I'm. I, that being said, um, it's going to be an interesting time for AM. I mean, it really is a win-win for them because you're not going to expect. I mean, coach has already been fired. Like you said, the hay is in the barn. The guys that are not there don't want to be there. Um, but I do think if you're if you're AM, you know, you do have some remnants of the 2022 class there. You do, you know, when we were talking about, I, I was. So disrespectful to A&M being able to last pods where I was laughing at them losing guys. And I went back and I looked at all the guys that are five stars that are still in this roster, are high four stars, right? There are several five stars, but lots of high four stars. You look around, you go, like you said, you know, a couple of these guys are second, first year players, red shirt, right? So you're going to get a look at some of these guys if you're an A&M fan. And, you know, it's not like your season uh, is going to be not embarrassing, right? Because you already started with the expectations that came crashing now. So now you're just house money. And it's not like, you know, you have 30 scholarship players or something. Um, it's, you know, what the second to last, what, five or four seasons that A&M has just been out of everyone for a bowl game. The last one they opted to not play, and then they missed a couple of bowl games. This one they're playing with 
Now the difference being the quarterback, right? We have a stabling quarterback, stabilizing quarterback. We're not playing some rando off the street, like the guy that they thought was fake Max Johnson. I think was the guy that was going to play in that first bowl game. But point being, I just said all that to say, I'm with you about Oklahoma State. I think that Gundy is a nightmare coach to play at a game like this because this is like, he'll make any game into a Super Bowl. You know what I'm saying? He'll make any game into, he's that guy who's the, oh, they counted me out. Uh, you know, we don't need the five stars. So they're not a team that really like, I think we're going to start to see a little bit of, and Oklahoma State is such a great example of what we started to see in college basketball, where the teams that have continuity but not a ton of talent tend to do better. You know, we saw Duke for 10 years lose these upset games to, you know, Yale and all these random teams. And, and it's like, you know, that's what Oklahoma State can be in the new era of college football is we all committed to Mike Gundy. We committed to Stillwater. We committed to this lifestyle. And a lot of those guys are still, you know, in the in the boat rowing ready for next season and Oklahoma State did have some really frustrating losses this year they lost bad to USA they lost bad to UCF um and really took them out of any type of contention uh but that being said this can be a bridge here where you have someone like you know uh, Gordon coming back and you have momentum you can build so I do think everything points towards this is kind of a win-win right it points towards if Oklahoma State wins they can build momentum for next year but AM, you get to see the young guys you get to kind of see you know what the core of this team going forward will be so it could be a really fun game and, and that being said if AM wins well you could talk mad crap all season so it's a Win, 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 really. If if you are thinking to yourself, what am I going to do on this Wednesday? Now, maybe you're listening to this driving to work on Wednesday morning, or maybe you've, you're listening to this driving to work on Thursday or something like that, and this game has already happened, and this is in your rear view mirror. Um, I hope that this game has, or has, depending on when you're, has had, by the time you're listening to this, just Pac-12 after dark vibes. That, that yep. would be ideal because you've got, a lot of young guys that should be playing in this one could be some bad defense. If I had to speculate, um, not maybe the best tackling, just weird mistakes happening uh, in, in this one. I don't expect it to be the most disciplined football game that we have ever seen. Um, yep. could, could be Ollie Gordon, the second making some people uh, look really stupid, but yeah. Uh, if A&M gets to eight and five in this one, do people still get to make the eight and four jokes? <laughs> I don't know. I don't think that doesn't seem right. That good question. And hey, we've already had the stupidest fight possible this bowl season. Speaking of USA, where you know you had a stolen helmet, you had a fight in the middle of the biggest blowout I've ever seen. So no need to start a stupid fight after this one either. We can all just go in the locker room and laugh at the goofy game. I was asked about that on Memphis radio. Shout out my guys uh, over there who do great work. Um, and and I've been they they basically like asked me. What, what should the punishment be for the Eastern Michigan player who just like came in the middle of the post-game celebration as they're doing, they're doing what the fight song and he just like comes helmet swing and you're just like, what, what are, what are we doing here? I was like, spend that guy for a year. If we used to, yeah. if we used to uh, essentially suspend players for transferring as undergrads and I realize there's an NCAA rule, but that's more or right. less what it was. It was, you're an undergrad and you're trying to transfer. Here's this season of your athletic prime that you have to sit out. Um, I think we could probably justify a way to be able to um, suspend a kid who made a, a pretty egregious mistake uh, in that spot. Just a, a wild, yep. wild moment. Yeah, hopefully none of that in this one. Or if it is, it's just not as severe. Just keep us entertained. It's going to be late. We're all Keep it pregame. Do that thing where you all push each other a little bit and yell yeah. and then be done. Those are this fun. Game, this game could be all oh, old Big 12 rivals at it again. These teams don't like each other. Uh, okay, that's sure. Let's let's see. Yeah. All right, let's ask a question about Kirby and Saban that um, I've been thinking about since the SEC championship. 
I, I've been waiting to ask it though, because I didn't want it to sound too prisoner in the moment. If I had asked this two, three weeks ago and gone in depth with it, I think it would have felt that way because in the wrong text context, I think this can be laughed off. It, it really can. And Georgia fans, maybe you will listen to this entire thing and still laugh me off, but just hear me out. So here, here's the question. Did Kirby Smart miss out on his window to ever pass Nick Saban? And so th there, there are a lot of different ways to look at that. I am not asking that as it relates to those yearly coach rankings because right. those conversations about the best coach in the sport at the time are a little bit different than, oh, we're talking about who is the more accomplished coach when it's all said and done. Today, we're just talking about who is going to be the more accomplished coach when they are sitting there on a beach somewhere, sipping a Mai Tai and thinking about their careers. Who will be... You're talking about greatest all time. I mean, because that's what Nick Yes, Nick Saban is the greatest of all time. I, I can't argue against that. I have no reason to argue against that. I, I will take him over Bear Bryant. I, I've mm -hmm. done the breakdown many a time. I think this year has has only added to that. But th those are two different Unfortunately, neither can I. He is my goat as well. Yes, even Will is admitting that. That's how you know. Uh, his unbiased mm -hmm. opinion, uh, Saban is is the goat. But like, I, I wanted to, to dig into this because if there's a Georgia fan who has already turned this episode off, and pointed out the fact that Kirby is only 48 years old. And when Saban turned 48, he was still the head coach at Michigan State. He was just trying to show that he could be the long-term answer somewhere at a Power 5 program. He was still, like, in the – they were, like, six, nothing but, like, 6-6 six and six before that at Michigan State. And then, boom, his last year there, he figures it out, parlays that into the LSU job. Like, I, I get that. I, I'm fully, fully aware. And if you look at this question through that lens – you'll say it is really stupid to cap Kirby's potential to have a more impressive resume than Saban, especially if you're someone like me who believes that even after losing the SEC championship, I still believe Georgia is going to be the team of the 2020s. When we look back on this decade, when we're doing all of our end of decade stuff in 2029, I believe we will say Georgia was the team of this decade. Even when I saw the Trevor Etienne news, when I'm standing in line at the, the Portillo's and Brandon, uh, and I'm thinking to myself, like, oh, God, uh, is it too early to pencil Georgia in as my national champ for next year? Is it too early <laughs> for that? Uh, that's how much I love Trevor Etienne. We will be talking a lot of Trevor Etienne this offseason. Mark my words for it. I might still pick that, TBD. Um, that would mean I'm predicting Kirby will win his third title in four years. That's That would be what a prediction like that is is saying and that would obviously match Saban's best four-year stretch at Bama I would actually argue that if Saban were to beat Michigan to reach a national championship the most insane Saban stat would be him getting Alabama to a national championship berth 10 times in a 15-year stretch you think quick think about that that'll that'll never not be insane to get to a national championship 10 times in a 15-season stretch. That's two out of every three seasons for a 15-year stretch. Georgia played in three national championship games over a six-year stretch, and that felt like a monumental feat. It really did. Yeah. I'm not trying to take away from Georgia. Time will tell if Kirby is going to have a 15-year stretch that rivals what Saban has done. For now, we know that he missed out on having something that Saban didn't have. That is obviously the three P doing that in an era of transfer portal, NIL tampering, 
roster retention is such a difficult thing. That would have been the stuff of legend. And I would have gotten on these airwaves and given Kirby all the credit in the world. Repeating as a national champ after losing 15 players to the NFL draft is also the stuff of legend. But three-peating would have been a feat that I argued would have put Kirby on the all-time Mount Rushmore of college football coaches, especially if you're looking at the sports history through a post-integration world, which I really think everybody should. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, like there's there's no doubt. You can kind of get into some of the numbers with with certain coaches and be like, mm, I, 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 don't, I, don't, I can't quite buy that yet. That's why... And I'm not trying to take away from certain coaches that did a pre-integration. You're, you know, you're working with the hand that you're dealt. Um, you're also one of the ones making that hand. But it's just a different sport in the way that it is viewed. Who can be good? What are what factors are limiting you? So then, why, despite all that's still on the table for Kirby Smart, could passing Saban actually be off the table? That SEC championship victory gave Saban a five and one record against Kirby Smart. Mm-hmm. 2017 title game, 2018 SEC championship, 2020 regular season, 2021 SEC championship, and now the 2023 SEC championship. It is hard to imagine a world in which Saban retires without a winning record against Kirby, right? I think even Georgia fans would probably admit that, that that we think that by the time Nick Saban is willing to say, I'm going to call it a career, is he going to have a winning record against Kirby now that he's 5-1 and against him? Yeah, just probably that's what evidence suggests even if he doesn't win another game is the odds are still very much in his favor to do that do we think matter of fact if he's if he gets to five and four if i was nick saban i would just retire spontaneously it'd be like you know what i'm gonna go give you the chance at this point (laughs) i mean it's it's some are gonna say that's like taking his ball and going home I, I don't think that he had is. six chances. What do you mean? That's a, yeah. a regular, not a small sample size in college football. Yeah. yeah. Do, do we think Saban is going to continue coaching if he loses three more games to Georgia? Or do we think if he loses one or, or two more of those games and it prevents them from winning a national championship, maybe, maybe two, like two consecutive games to Kirby. He's like, ah, just, I'm just not quite on that level anymore. It's his time. Like, Maybe he will step back and say, hey, I've done everything I need to do. I've got seven rings as, as of this, this recording. And maybe he'll say, I'm going to call it a career. That would not be doing the, the easy way out. That would be a 72-year-old coach in this era of the sport with the year-round calendar, realizing that he's just probably not set up to do this into his 80s, like Joe Paterno, like Bobby Bowden. Because a man the, following doctor's recommendations this is what that would be. <laughs> Probably. Hey, yes. Nick, you really need to, you know, stop eating those little Debbie Cates, get a little bit more sleep, keep your heart rate down. Okay, gotcha. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I think the transfer portal has shaved at least one year off of your life, and uh, you're bordering on two right now. Uh, we saw those dip cups in your Lamborghini or whatever. You need to cut that out. I can tell you're stressed, all right, man? <laughs> hey, look, Bobby, Bobby Carpenter said on this show that back in the day, when you go into Saban's office, you know what's in, what's, what's in there, and that's ready to go. Look, guys, whatever he's doing, it's, it's still working. If I'm looking mm-hmm. that good at 72, I've done something right in my life. And I'm not going to hear the, the, the haters saying that, I, that I'm doing things that are, that are wrong for my body. Um, if the over-under, though, is eight more years for Saban to coach in this sport, mm-hmm. I'll take the under. I mean, that's not bold, is it? I, I don't think so. Please. <laughs> <laughs> eight more years. Goodness, man. Hey, look, I, I'm in the content business. Uh, Alabama being... The, the villain of the sport, whatever you want to call it, is, is probably 
more interesting uh, for those of us uh, on this side. But you know, mm-hmm. I'll also acknowledge that you know it's not it's not a zero percent chance that Saban will be doing this when he's eighty. Okay, we we just don't know. The odds are just not necessarily in his favor. Also, if the over under on Kirby is another thirty two years for him to do this until he is eighty, I will take the under. I just mm-hmm. will. This isn't really about that, though, because Kirby and Saban are obviously on different tracks with different factors that could impact their longevity. I remember after 2018, after Clemson wins the national championship, dominate Bama, dominate Bama mm-hmm. in a way that it has not been dominated since Bama became Bama under Saban. I remember writing after that season that a 49 year old Dabo Sweeney had the ability to pass Saban one day, having just obviously led Clemson to that second national championship, which puts you in a different stratosphere in this sport. And oh, by the way, you got to your third title game in four years. I pointed to the age factor and how Dabo didn't look like a guy that was slowing down. Five years later, could you He's convince... a boomer five years later. He's yes. older than Nick Saban five years later. <laughs> Not to hate on boomers, but if there ever was one in the college football coaching world, Dabo is probably leading the pack. He just probably is. Could you convince... Even the most diehard Tyler from Spartanburg Clemson fan to take the over on 0.5 Clemson national championships under Dabo? No. Mm, no that's way. That's a good question. That's a real good question. I, I don't think so. Not with that offense, not without like a Trevor Lawrence. If they land another one of those guys, maybe, but uh, it's got to be that style of gentleman. That's what we've seen. They haven't even gotten to the playoff these last three seasons. And there are teams that have gotten in the playoff like Oklahoma year after year in which we've all kind of been like, yeah, they're still pretty far from a national championship. They're, they're not at that level just yet. And I think even you know if Clemson got there, we'd still have a lot of those questions. Um, but that's, that's the interesting thing as, as we look at this. Kirby, obviously, obviously is not considered, as we'll just so delicately put it, a boomer in this sport. Kirby has adapted. We talk about adapt or die. Kirby has absolutely adapted. It yep. felt like Dabo was perfectly built for the late 2010s of college football and not so much for the 2020s version. I believe Kirby is built perfectly for the 2020 version of college football. In mm-hmm. this decade, he should continue to thrive. If I had to guess, I would say this is probably going to be Georgia's last time missing the playoff for a while, at least yep. now as it sits here with a 12-team field. Yes, I'm going to put Georgia in there every single year, barring some sort of drastic change with this team, with this program. If I had to guess, I would also say that 1936 Minnesota, good old Ed Widseth, Bernie Ed Bierman, Winseth, he's back. Big Ed, who could forget? I would say those guys are going to be popping champagne from their grave on a yearly basis because for a long, long time, the barrier to entry was different than what it is about to be. I actually think that the idea of three-peating in a 12-team playoff is harder. I, I really do. Oh, I, yeah, and I of think, course. It's like March Madness. The more teams that get in, the bigger the variance. Yes. History tells us that as we've continued to beef up the postseason, it's no longer just, oh, win 10 games and then play for a national championship or win 11 games, play a bowl game, wake up and read the paper the next morning to find out if you're a national champion. History has told us that as we have progressed, it has been 
that much harder to have consecutive national championships. Maybe Georgia or someone else will change my outlook on that. And we'll look up and be like, oh my God, like they just dominate this 12 team playoff. All they got to do is get in. I don't care if they're nine and three, just get them in there. They'll find a way to be able to get it done. But for now, I am of the opinion that there are more factors than ever that can stand in the way of continuity as we talk about and, and what it could do to your roster and timely injury here, you know, missed ball that bounce, doesn't bounce your way there against a quality team that's playing a, in a competitive game with you. Like all these things that are kind of working against that level of dominance and why I don't think a run of three consecutive national championships is going to happen in the 12 team playoff era. Mm-hmm. What is equally tough is having the fan base shift its perspective of you. And that's something that we don't always account for, right? We can feel what that's like in the moment, but we don't always do the best job of anticipating that or always know what that's going to look like. We talk about linear progression in the sport, and it's different now than I think it was in the previous era well, now it's it's the internet, the echo chamber, everything that could go against you and how quickly things can change for you. Mm-hmm. It is really tough, obviously, to pull off three consecutive national championship runs. It is more tough, tougher than ever to say, oh, you're never going to, what's the right way to phrase this? You're never going to go three consecutive years without winning a national championship. That is that is what Saban has been able to do. He has been able to look everyone in the eye since he has signed them 15 years, 16 years ago and say, hey, you stay here for three years, you're going to win a national championship. That is an unbelievable LSU. thing. Yeah, well, since LSU. Yeah. And that's on the line this year. That's on the line. But, but at Bama, he has been able to say that. And that mm-hmm. is a, an all-time ace in the hole. And... Obviously, you know, we'll talk about what that means for the Saban legacy. If that all of a sudden is something that he could no longer say, if they lose to Michigan or if they lose the national championship, that'll be a different conversation. But if you think Kirby is above a change in perspective among the fan base and that his approval rating and his the trajectory of the program, they won't change because, oh, the Hayes already in the barn. He won multiple national championships. Go back to Dabo at Clemson. Okay. Not saying Kirby is going to be Dabo, but if you think it can't be done, that's a reminder that it absolutely can be done and reputations change in the sport. Saban's most impressive feat, probably with the exception of the 10 national championship appearances in 15 years, his most impressive feat as a head coach is taking all of those instances in which people have said, oh, the dynasty is dead. Oh, Saban's past his prime. Only to then respond by winning a national championship. And that that is unparalleled success in the sport eventually people at some point are going to say i think the glory days of kirby smart are in the rearview mirror i don't know when that's going to happen but it happens to everyone that's just the way that it works but instead being able to respond by saying nope i've still got my fastball being able to do that time and time again is incredibly difficult and it's draining and doing that for nearly a decade like saban has is not a guarantee. It's just not. We haven't necessarily seen Kirby have to do that yet because he's still only in year eight as a head coach. And I say only year eight because if he's going to get to Saban legacy levels as a coach all time, he's going to be doing this for at least two decades 
probably more. That's just reality. That's how many cracks you're going to need to be able to get on that level to have been to as many national championships, to have won as many national championships as Nick Saban. I don't know how many more battles those two are going to have. No idea. We know that as long as Saban doesn't call it a career after this season, which I don't think he'll do because I think they would prefer to have more of a succession plan for that. Um, that, that could be something to keep in mind, but I've been asked that question a couple of different times. I don't, I don't think Saban is walking off after this year. Uh, maybe I'll get cold take on that, but um, as long as that doesn't happen, they will face off next year. We know that maybe Kirby can get the last laugh on Saban kind of like Fulmer did with Spurrier. And by the way, that's talking about the Oh one game, not the very forgettable 27 to six game that they had in 08 when Spurrier was at South Carolina, Fulmer kind of ran out of gas at Tennessee, his final season there. We're not talking about that. Even though they both won a title, those two coaches, Fulmer, Spurrier, they're often in those same conversations. Spurrier is always going to win in any argument against Fulmer because of the fact that he had this seven to three advantage during the decade that they had those battles with Florida and Tennessee. And it's still nine. He's nine and five against Fulmer. If you want to include the South Carolina chapter wherein he was two and two against Fulmer. Mm-hmm. Think, think about how decorated of a coach Steve Spurrier is. And he won one ring. Yep. He won one in Nebraska. It's God and Tom Osborne in no particular order. That man is so glad three you rings. said that. Yep. That man has three rings and he can do no wrong. Mm-hmm. I am convinced that Tom Osborne could commit murder in the streets in Nebraska and people could witness it and they would say, ah, you know what? <sighs> kind of got to let him off. He is Tom Osborne. Like, but you know what? He wasn't doing He wasn't giving up five yards per carry. All right. So who's the real criminal here? Tom Osborne was not producing a program that yielded table pounding in the press box. Like we've seen uh, throughout the 21st century. That's a great callback. Will. great callback. Mm-hmm. Uh, think about this too. Barry Switzer. He also won three rings in a really similar era to Tom Osborne. A lot of people outside of Nebraska, I'm not saying in Nebraska because you're not winning that argument, but outside yeah. of Nebraska, they will tell you that Switzer should always be considered better than Osborne because he was 12 and five against him. And two of Osborne's three rings came after Switzer left Oklahoma. So these arguments, as it relates to head-to-head type stuff, if you're going to be in that that category, these arguments do matter and they carry some weight. And obviously there are people that are going to bang the drum for Kirby and say, oh, what about total wins? Wins against top five teams or or whatever. And there are always going to be different factors that, that you could probably point to and make your case. But... For Kirby to end his career and truly be considered the better all-time coach than Nick Saban, I think he had to beat him in Atlanta this past time. Even though he still would have only been two and four against Saban, doing so in route to a three-peat would have opened the conversation in a way that it wasn't probably before outside of the, what has he done at age 48? What has he done at age 48? Part of the argument. But that's not the only part of the argument. It's mm-hmm. just not, okay? For all I know, Saban is about to widen that ring gap, and he's about to make it 8-2. to two. That could happen. We could be a couple of weeks away from talking about that. But if Smart had won that game in Atlanta and won a third national championship, won a third consecutive national championship, he would still not even be halfway to Saban's seven yet. It is just such an unbelievable number that I don't think we can take for granted 
how difficult it is for anyone to get on that level, even someone that has looked as close to Saban as anything in the sport that we have seen in the playoff era in Kirby Smart. But it's just an interesting conversation. It's also kind of like the Brady Mahomes thing, right? That's and funny that's also seven to two in terms of ranks. Yeah. With, wow. How about that? That's a good point. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Like Brady is Saban in this scenario. Kirby is Mahomes. Mahomes wins all the like side by side arguments of, well, compare them both to what they were doing by age 27. Like Mahomes is going to win that every single time, like all time yeah, passing numbers and stuff, playing a different era of football. It's like he's mm-hmm. going to win that argument. But Brady beating Mahomes in that one Super Bowl, right? In that one yep. Super Bowl doing that at age, what, like 40? Or what was Brady when he was in Tampa in 2020? Oh. Like, I mean, it, beating him then, it kind mm-hmm. of feels like that's always going to give him the head to head, even though they were three and three against each other all time. Like, it kind of feels like that's always going to be the trump card for Brady in that argument. And it'll, it'll just always be. And I remember hearing people talk about it after about how hard it's going to be for Mahomes to ever top Brady. And the more I thought about it, I'm like, kind of right. I, mm-hmm. And I think Mahomes might end up being like, the better player to watch. And, you know, he's going to set all these records and do all these things. But like, how do you argue against that? When Mahomes was at that stage of his career, Brady was at that stage and the total ring argument, if it's, if it does end up even being seven to seven, by the time it's all said and done, you're like, man, that that has to count for for something I I would think. And here, this is the part in the podcast where a lot of people are saying, well, you didn't think that the Texas Alabama head to head argument carried any weight. So why should this one fair point? I'll stand down. Okay. Yeah. Now, I swear, I was sitting here as you were talking, and I was concocting my point, and I was sitting there thinking, this is how you know we've been doing this for a while, I was thinking, well, people are going to understand, they're going to have context, that a coach like, I swear, Tom Osborne and uh, Barry Switzer don't exist anymore. And you could throw Bowden in there, but Bowden did actually, like, go out of his conference. He whooped the mess out of LSU and played Florida, like a little bit different, because they really did make their own schedule and play some people without meds. But those guys were kings. I'm so glad, especially coming from Nebraska, you were able to give that because I was going to make that point worse. Um, now I won't feel as bad for making the second half of my point. Connor, who's the greatest basketball player of all time? Come on. I'm very biased. Well, we're not having this conversation if Michael Jeffrey Jordan is not a member of the Chicago Bulls and winning championships in six of my first eight years on this earth. Okay. But he's 11 and 23 versus Larry Bird. <laughs> oh that's good that's good okay all right so point. so hear Fair me point. out okay so michael jordan okay is when he's a young player right he's figuring things out he can't he doesn't have the team together getting the mess knocked out of him by the pistons by the celtics you know and and you know by the time he beat magic johnson magic johnson was on the back end of his career he was yep. about to retire it was the end okay now and i'm i'm with you in that, Kirby needs to get to the total number of titles. But I think that these titles will be more significant as time goes on. Because, and imagine if you could go talk to Nick Saban in 2009, right? And, you know, he's talking about Greg McElroy, John Parker Wilson, and just show him tape of, like, Tua or Bryce. Yeah, what football is going to become. Yeah, how different just, it'll be a decade later. And, yeah. And just be like, no, 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 no. Look at Jalen Milrow and look at him walking out of bounds. And you're going to have to play that guy and you're going to make a playoff. And he'll go, a playoff? What do you mean a playoff? Okay. That's why Nick Saban 
is the goat because he started off over here and now the game has evolved and he has evolved with it. Now, that being said, the game is moving faster than ever. So just as, you know, you could look at Magic and Bird and say that was a really high point in the NBA. Okay, the reason why Michael Jordan was better than them, even though he didn't have the head-to-head -head record for any of them, is that he was able to equal, you know, what Magic did title-wise, past Larry Bird, obviously, but he was able to do it consecutively. He was able to do it in a more dominant fashion. He was able to do it in a newer era of basketball where the league was more competitive, right? So there's a lot of uh, runway for Kirby Smart that he still has to make up. And you're exactly right. That game in Atlanta matters a ton. I'm not taking that out. That was such a, what we as writers dream of, of a torch passing moment. And Nick Saban knew that too. Okay, Nick Saban knew that too. And when you put Nick Saban in a situation where his back is against the wall, he is going to, neither of you are making out alive. If he's not making out alive. And that's what we saw in that game. Okay, we saw a gentleman that didn't commit those turnovers because he knew what the situation was. And so point being, Kirby Smart can pass Nick Saban because of exactly what you just said, which is that championships are harder to win. He, doesn't, he already has the two consecutive. Hmm. And I think that's a really big deal. Okay, because that's still the playoff era. It's not BCS titles, you know, like Saban's work is you won you won playoff games. Now the three again, it would have it would have made that road so much shorter, and we would have been able to have that conversation in five, six, seven years. It's gonna take I mean, Claire is gonna be looking at colleges before we're talking about Kirby Smart passing Nick Saban now. Now it could happen, okay, but he's gonna need to be at Georgia or go somewhere else like Nick Saban did. And if they're dumb enough to run him out of town, okay, good. They deserve it, all right? Because at the end of the day, there's something that's a little bit different about Kirby. It's two things. He ended the drought, and he's a former player there. If that fan base turns on him outside of a Coach-O-level scandal, which, I mean, hitting on boosters' wives and uh, committing crimes and doing stuff like that, if he's not doing the stuff that Coach-O did and he's just winning eight games and being, you know, quote-unquote, Mark Rick, who was such a bad coach that if – you know, take out Brian Kelly, I would take Mark Easy. Rick any day. Because, Easy. No, because Georgia fans talk about Mark Rick like he's terrible. It's like, dude, Mark Rick was a great coach. They but talk about him terrible at two, with the context of like 2014, 2015. I think they have a different appreciative appreciation for him now than they mm -hmm. did in, in the heat of those moments. But again, that, to your point, that's kind of why yep. like perspective changes over time and we value wins in a different sort of way and why – we could look back on these titles that Kirby is winning and say it was a more difficult time to win those. And maybe yep. those can carry more weight. I see what you're getting at. I think it's a fair point. Yeah. And, and I think part of it, I mean, I'm not going to say this is like a fraudulent title or anything, but you know, the Bama title against um, Texas, you know, the quarterback gets hurt and that's it. I mean, there's no play in game. There's no other test. You got to beat. You got to beat a slippery slope. Will that's a slippery I know. I understand. Slope. I understand. I understand. But let me tell you, it's one game. It's one game. It's all, there's yeah. that's a factual statement. It's one game. Okay. Now, if there was that was the first round. If they had beaten two other teams en route to that game, you would go, all right, just like we did with Georgia at TCU. We say we are there to beat Ohio State. That's such yeah. a great example. There to beat Ohio State. So if they had beaten uh, Iowa or something. And then TC would have been like, well, this is kind of sus. How'd they end up here? But it was the fact that they beat what was likely the second best team in America in the playoff. The thing is going forward, you know, you're not missing anybody in this 12-team playoff, all right? When you get to the end, 
you've played either everybody or like what LSU did in 19 where, yeah, they didn't play Ohio State, but it's because Clemson was better than them, right? It, either you play the team or that team loses. That's it in the 12-team playoff. You don't miss a team the way that you did back in the day. You don't, oh, well, this team won their bowl game uh, like Tebow did in 09 by 50, but it just doesn't matter because, you know, they already played Alabama. We don't know what the rematch would be. Anyway, so point being, you know, they're going to be so much more decisive in that way that I think, and they're going to be so much harder to win, that you're going to have these moments in these games and these semifinals, just like the Ohio State game is such a great example. I mean, that is arguably, I mean, the Bama game is number one in the championship, right? But number two and right there is that Ohio State missed field goal because it's like, you know, these are the moments Georgia would always lose, da 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 And that's a semifinal game, a game that used to not exist. So now when you start stacking up these moments, you say, well, now you're going to have you know, multiple other rounds where Georgia might be an underdog, just like Nick Saban is right now. But this is 11 and one team. We might get a nine and three Georgia team that wins a title. You know what I'm saying? And then we start talking about, wow, look what Kirby did when it mattered. Da, da, da. So I, I just will say, and especially, you know, we got to factor in Brock Purdy MVP conversation, right? We got to factor in that we always got to talk about something. So when we get five, 10 years removed from Nick Saban, we might start looking at Kirby smart and going, well, you know, this is the best there's ever been. That's why I was always pretty hesitant to the LeBron thing, just like Michael Jordan, because I was like, you know, the people your age or the people that were a little bit older than me that saw Jordan are like, you just don't get it. You just don't see what that was. You didn't experience it. You didn't see the 72-win team. And so same deal. So so point being, I, I think it's both things. I think that, that that game put so much distance between them in the GOAT conversation currently, but... I think it is still possible. It's just going to take a long freaking time. It's not going to be something that we discuss as Saban's playing or coaching. I mean, because even if he loses two or three, if you're a Georgia fan, you can't sit there and go, well, you see fluke still got a losing record, brother. Yeah. That, that is still going to be there. And that's, I, I think a big part of this conversation, I'm trying not to be too triggered about the Larry bird, Michael Jordan slander. <laughs> um, <laughs> I was feeling about. bad. Then you said two of my examples. I went, dang, I can't even make these examples anymore. I got cut right to the chase. No, I, I, I see what you're saying too, because if it's just about head to head, then okay. You can find certain coaches that have had their, their nemesis and nemesis, nemesis, nemesis. That's a weird word to pluralize. I've never yeah. had to do that before um, on this podcast, but you could probably find certain coaches that you'd say, "Oh, well, he's two and five against this head coach, and why isn't this guy considered Urban better? Meyer this- winning record against Nick Saban?" Yeah, Urban Meyer winning record against Nick Saban, great example. Urban Meyer sitting there with three rings, and for my money, the second best college football coach of the 21st century. Why don't we call him the first best coach of the 21st century? Well, because the guy who's first best has seven rings, and Urban has three. It's pretty mm-hmm. cut and dry, in my opinion. And it's more of a, hey, if they're in that same conversation, they're separated by a ring or two. And we're going back mm-hmm. and forth with this. What are we going to default to? The MJ and Bird thing is a little bit different, too, just because I hate to keep going back to this and doing a first take thing. But there's like, if you look at MJ's supporting cast, he didn't get over the Bird hump until he had yeah. his Scotty Pippen, his Horace Grant right. that were at his side, that were ready to break through. And the Celtics were at a different place in their their dynasty team of the eighties team of the nineties, a little bit different um, in terms of the eras. And you can look at that and say, well, okay, well, why is, why wouldn't you say that about Georgia versus Bama? I would argue when we're looking at the roster talent that Georgia has, that's probably a different conversation to have to say like, Oh, well, they're still establishing this. Like, no, well, Georgia was just in, in pursuit of its third national championship. It'd be like, if MJ also, was trying to- and- you might know this. I, I don't. And I was I was like, oh, but this is a good follow up. You know, where was Saban at that point in his career? Because that's what it's about is that 
Kirby made that into a beast at the point where Saban hadn't totally figured that out. Even at LSU, great teams, definitely not taking away from that. More of a reclamation project at LSU too. But Kirby, it's about how old you are and how what point you're coaching. Because that's his first head coaching job. There was no Michigan State. There was no LSU, you know? And I pushed back on the people that said he'll never figure it out when it looks like after – I mean, there were different parts, I think, after 2019, maybe in the midst of 2020, where you're kind of like, is, is this guy going to get it? Was 2017 just this this one-off? It, it wasn't that long ago mm-hmm. that we were asking that question. And we were saying, Kirby's just always going to do something, a Justin Fields fake punt. He's going to start Jake Fromm when he shouldn't. Or you know, they're going to do this stupid thing, cost themselves an, a national championship. They're not going to have the right coverage on for second and 26. They're going to do something stupid. Or they're not going to execute it. They probably have the right. They probably could have still covered that. It was unbelievable for own cash. We don't need to go there. But they're probably just going to get in their own way. We're no longer asking that question about Kirby. Right. And there are very few people in this sport that you can legitimately say that about. The flip side of that is how many people can you say year after year after year? Oh, they're just going to find a way. Yep. They're just going to find a way. They're going to compete for a national championship. It's going to look like they're down and out. Same is the only one that you can definitively say that about. And I'm not breaking news by by saying that Kirby's ability to become that guy. That's what makes or breaks this entire thing. And I'm not sitting here trying to put cap on the amount of national championships. Kirby's going to win. I just mm-hmm. think as it relates to the side-by-side with where those programs are at and where they're at during these matchups, where, where yeah. that has been at, how we viewed them, wherein I think George has been favored in three of those six matchups too. That's something else to keep in mind. Like, it's not like, Oh, George has been an eight point favorite or a nine point underdog or something like that going into all these matchups. And that's how it's played out. Something else yep. that, that kind of adds the context to why Saban doing what he's done against Kirby only adds to his legacy. And it makes him that much more untouchable in my opinion. Yeah. And, and I'd say it's something that we have hammered over and over again about adapter diets that Saban is not only the winningest coach, not only the most championship, but also the adapter die champion, right? Yep. And that's why Kirby has a chance to take that title from when you talk about maybe we go to two super conferences, you know, maybe, maybe that area of it, you know, and we're talking about playing these massive schedules against all these different teams. Um, oh, and I, I will say this too. You know, what would actually be stranger to tell Saban than the quarterback thing. What if we just described Jameer Gibbs to him? Like, what do you want as a running back? He's not really a guy that runs the ball too much. He's like a guy that kind of does everything else. Like, this is Derrick Henry, and that's Jameer Gibbs. It's like, it's crazy how the game has changed. I I really, I I hate how much I've been crediting Saban lately. But seriously, and and it might be the thing where you look in 10 years and we look at, you know, what Kirby's doing. There's a whole new position we've never thought of. I mean, the concept of even like an Ed rusher. You know, is not, you know, you had DNs and you had outside linebackers, but now it's like we got an edge rusher and that's what they do. It's a job. It's not a position. So the game of football could change so much. And you see how the defensive schemes have changed. And one other thing is losing personnel. You talk about losing Dan Lanning. Shulman's probably going to go somewhere. You know, we're going to switch offensive. We're going to, Todd Munkin's gone. They've already, and it sucks that, you know, this season will not be remembered as a success for Georgia, you know, with their standards, the third championship, getting to the playoff, because how they adjusted without, Brock Bowers and Todd Munkin, I think deserves credit, but that's not how it's going to be remembered, unfortunately. Yes, it'll be to to continue that will be a lot more difficult, a lot more difficult. By the way, I definitely have texted on several occasions with Jeff Collins about Jameer Gibbs and just how much we both love him and just gushing awesome. over over the things he, like favorite favorite non bear. Ah, Justin Jefferson is probably probably my guy, but. <laughs> And, and Saquon too, but man, Gibbs, I 
freaking love Jameer Gibbs. He's unbelievable. Uh, perfect. I, as far as Bama backs, I love Henry. I love a guy who makes people look like children. So Henry is sure. my favorite Bama back. Gibbs is probably number two to me. I, that yeah. style of guy that you gave him the ball, he could, you never know what's going to happen. I love that style of guy. He's that dude. All right, let's kick it to Gary Stokin. Uh, I love having Gary on because it's a reminder of how many different people are involved to make the college football beast what it is today. And I always value his perspective on not just his bowl game, but on the sport as a whole. So here's Gary. I'm now excited to be joined by a very special guest. It is one of the OG guests of this show, the Chick-fil-A Peach Bowl CEO and President Gary Stoken. Gary, I got to say, some years I, I feel like you get put in a tough spot now with the the slot when it's a, a non-playoff New Year's Six Bowl and that's kind of out of your hands. And then other years, you get a really nice matchup. And you got an awesome matchup this year with Ole Miss and, and Penn State, something that I've kind of been wanting to see as somebody that's debated the, the strength of those two teams throughout the year and just getting into a New Year's Six Bowl. So I love that these two teams are going to get to decide this on the field. How loud of a fist pump was that that you let out when you saw that this matchup was going to be yours on Selection Sunday? Yeah, it really was. I mean, we were a little bit surprised, obviously, with the Florida State-Alabama situation, which did have ramifications down the line because if Florida State would have got in, Alabama more than likely would have been playing Louisville in the Orange Bowl, completely changed the Orange Bowl. And then the, the trickle down from there, Ole Miss is probably in the Citrus Bowl. So for Ole Miss to get a part of being in the Chick-fil-A Peach Bowl, playing a New Year's Six game, and having the opportunity to win its 11th game for the first time in its history, you know, they're all excited. Uh, and then secondly, Penn State, who, you know, obviously was not going to get into the playoff, was looking for an opportunity at 10-2, and two, losing to two top six teams of playing a big New Year's Six matchup. And they got Ole Miss, who they've never played before. Uh, Penn State can be the first team uh, to win all six New Year's Six Bowl games uh, in the history of college football because next year we go to the playoff. Um, this would be their 20th year that they've won 11 games if they win this game. So uh, you got a number one defense against the top 10 quarterback and top 10 running back and a top 20 offense. Uh, you got two teams that are in the top 12 of turnover margin. Um, so both teams are stingy giving the ball up, but really effective in getting the ball uh, for their offenses. Um, you know, I think one of the keys is Ole Miss is hurry up offense. You know, unless you practice or play against that consistently, like you practice or play against an option team, very difficult for a defense to, you know, be ready for that real live action because you can't simulate it, number one. Number two, it changes your whole substitution patterns because you can't get certain people in on different downs and situations because every 23 seconds, Ole Miss has got a, a play coming at you. So I think there's some real intriguing things in this game. We know both teams are ready to play and ready to play, you know, effectively and, uh, in, in, you know, win this type of game in New Year's Six. So. That makes for a great bowl matchup. It, it really is. And, and I think there are other spots. You look at Georgia and Florida State, kind of what they're working through right now, even Mizzou and Ohio State, not on the Mizzou side, but on the Ohio State side, you're like, man, I, I don't know what type of team you're going to have uh, for, with Ohio State. It's, you know, it's interesting because I feel like a few years ago when we talked, 
it was it would be great to get some Big Ten teams in this game just because huge fan bases. It's it's not like it's a difficult place to get to. Obviously, Atlanta, like anybody can get to Atlanta. You've gotten three consecutive years of Big Ten teams in the Peach Bowl. Last year, obviously, with the playoff and then Michigan State before that. What type of Penn State representation are you expecting to be able to have in Atlanta? Well, they're really – we went up there, let's see, I guess a week ago to do our press conference. Huge turnout of media. Uh, all their coaches from all their, their other programs were there. Um, you know, they're really excited. Uh, you know, we're going to have another sellout, which will be our 24th in 27 years. You mentioned having Big Ten teams, you know, for us to have Michigan, Michigan State, Ohio State, and now Penn State in the next in the last four years, uh, after having ACC SEC for I think twenty years in a row in our contracts, yeah, it's been really cool to see some of the other conferences come down here and play. Uh, you know, we had Washington in two thousand sixteen in the semi against Alabama. We had Oregon in our kickoff game against Georgia. You know, a couple of years ago. So, you know, if you're going to be the capital of college football, you got to welcome everybody and. The great thing is there's so many alumni that live in Metro Atlanta from all these other schools around the country. It's, it's kind of cool to see them come out and support their teams and, uh, you know, have a, have a great opportunity to, you know, be on the East Coast in, in the case of the Pac-12 schools or even, you know, with the, the Midwest schools of the Big Ten to see them come to Atlanta and play in what I think is the best stadium in the country, Mercedes-Benz Stadium. You talk about that stadium. Please tell me, please tell me that James Franklin has already made a request to have the dome open and he's he's like doing whatever he can because it, it doesn't seem like it, it happens very often at Mercedes-Benz. Yeah, we we probably will not be open, but uh, James has not made that request. Um, but it is interesting talking to, to different coaches that have different perspectives. You know, um, every coach is looking for whatever – benefit they can get whatever edge they can get and uh but we'll have 72 degrees and uh it'll be closed at 12 10 on december 30th how did how does that this might seem like a dumb question for for those of us on the outside but i'm sure there's plenty of people listening to this wondering the same thing how does that decision happen because i feel like it's always such a foregone conclusion what if what if lane and, and james franklin both approached you and said hey We'd love to just have 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 it open. It w- would that be something that would be heard, or is it something that 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 decision is going to come down much earlier? And you're trying to create a certain fan atmosphere. You know, I think there's a, a few things you have to take into consideration. Number one is obviously the coaches, if they have interest one way or the other. Secondly, is the fan experience. You know, we we want the fans to enjoy the experience. Um, you know, I look at the weather every day and it changes every day, right? This far out. Um, but you know, with approximately a 55 degree temperature, you know, starting at noon, um, you know, we want to keep the fans, uh, uh, comfortable. So we'll probably keep it closed. And, but, you know, it basically comes down to my decision as to, you know, after taking all those things into consideration, what's best for the fans, the game, uh, the players, the coaches, et cetera. It's a lot of power. It's a lot of power. I mean, if you think about Jim Irsay tweets that all the time about having whether or not they're going to have Lucas Oil open or close. And it, it would probably change at, at least something from a stylistic standpoint. If all of a sudden you're like, oh, 
it's going to be 20 degrees colder here instead of, you know, what it usually would be 72 with AC going. It, it is it is one of those interesting things, uh, especially with a matchup like this with two teams with different styles. I, I've wondered, is there any momentum whatsoever, any more conversations about the idea that I pitched you a couple of years ago about having NIL-based awards for the winning team, kind of similar to what, and I realize this is professional athletes in an official sense, but like kind of similar to what we're seeing the NBA do with the in-season tournament and, and the, the cash incentive to be able to win that. Is there, are there any of those conversations happening or is that still way down the line? Yeah, we have not in the CFP, the New Year's Six, we haven't had any conversations regarding that. Um, what's to come in the new playoff system? You know, the CFP is still negotiating their, I don't think, even think they started negotiation, but they're talking to uh, TV networks, obviously. Once they have that done, then they'll come back to the Bulls, talk to us. So uh, I think that's premature. But, you know, again, I go back to, and maybe this when we had that conversation, you know, some of the media said, hey, you got Kenny Pickett and Kenneth Walker opting out. You know, why don't you pay him $50,000 to play in the game and NIL, whatever, through Chick-fil-A or whatever means. And I said, you know, the reason they're not playing in the game is they were just handed a number one draft card by the NFL, which has a 10 to $20 million signing bonus on it and probably a $40 million contract. So I don't think $50,000 is going to change their mind when they've got that much money on, you know, on the line. I think that is one of the unintended consequences that needs to be considered in the new playoff format is, you know, you have players that everybody's banged up at the end of the year and you're going to ask them to play a conference championship game, possibly a first round game, a quarterfinal, you know, a semifinal and then a championship game. And, you know, if you've just been handed after your conference championship game, uh, a number one on the card by the NFL, you know, you're talking about generational money, you know, you can get $20 million signing bonus and a, you know, 40 to $60 million contract and you're already hurt, you know, and you're going to go play the four toughest teams you've played, you know, in a first round game, a quarter, a semi and a championship game. And the easiest way to get, you know, really hurt is, you know, when you're hurt already. So, you know, I think that's something we need to consider, and it's an unintended consequences, as well as the fans. We need to consider the fans with asking them to go to a conference championship game and then a first-round potential, a quarterfinal, a semifinal, Christmas, and then a championship game. And so that's why I think the Bulls become even more relevant because we do have a one-game season ticket you know, that people in Atlanta buy our tickets because they know we're going to have a good game. And so that's a built-in crowd already. So you don't have to depend solely on both teams bringing all their fans to every game. And particularly since those games are going to be, you know, in some cases a week in between. And we all know the algorithm of the airlines, how those rates get jacked up, you know, once they know that, hey, people are going to be coming to Atlanta for a quarterfinal or semifinal game, you know, it becomes quite costly within a week. So uh, players playing week to week, not a month in between games when they're banged up, unintended consequences. You know, fans having to travel week to week without having a month in between to, to book refundable flights, that's an unintended consequence. 
There's a lot of moving pieces. There's a lot. And, and you're right. The, the Kenny Pickett, Kenneth Walker thing, you're, that's not necessarily going to incentivize those guys. Where I think it could be interesting is the is the portal guys. All those guys who hop in the portal when that window opens right after November. And if the idea of playing in a specific bowl game incentivizes them to to win money that they're getting in NIL purposes. And they're like, hey, wait a minute. If I, if I get you know, $100,000 to be MVP of this bowl game, as opposed to whatever I'm getting in NIL, again, everybody's different with what their market looks like. But, you know, I wonder if that- But I think NIL could look completely different too. I mean, we could be talking about unionized collective bargaining, you know, in the the 26 in the new playoff format, you know, the way things are going. So, you know, we'll just have to wait and see. And, uh, you know, we know this, that college football is ever changing, ever evolving. And, uh, you know, it's going to be something different two years from the one what it is today. How do you feel about this? This is the last the last hurrah in many ways for this era of college football. And I, I wonder for, and, and, you know, having the playoff and the non-playoff New Year's Six and the way that it's that that it's discussed, uh, that that part is obviously changing. Or is it more instead of this fear that that this sport that that has been really good to you and really good to to people that know how to put on bowl, good bowl games, is there excitement knowing hey we're hosting a national championship next year, the first national championship of the twelve team playoff? Like how are you looking at the, this new era of college football? You voiced some of those concerns, but but knowing that hey we have something really really exciting on the horizon that's going to be the talk of the sport and is going to have even more build up to our game. Well, you're right. You know, we're really blessed. We were meeting this morning at Mercedes-Benz Stadium and we went over the schedule for the next, you know, two years until this contract is over. And, you know, if you can imagine, we have Clemson, Georgia in our AFLAC kickoff game to kick off the season next year. Uh, At the end of the season, we have the SEC championship game. Then we have the uh, quarterfinal, the first New Year's six or 12-team playoff. And then we have the national championship game. And then you move along to 25, we have, you know, two AFLAC kickoff games with Tennessee, Syracuse, and South Carolina, Virginia Tech, the SEC championship game, a semifinal CFP game. Um, And so, you know, you're looking at probably, I don't know what I mentioned there, but probably eight games of, you know, top 10 teams coming through Atlanta over the next two years in college football. So, you know, it's a remarkable schedule um, and, you know, having the first time city hosting two national championships in the CFP era and all those other top games, you know, that's why the media is calling us the capital of college football. Look, I, I'm not going to fight you on that one. I, I won't. I will fight people that tell me that the Rose Bowl absolutely needs to be the future home of the national championship after those contracts are done. 2026 is the last one that we have set right now. Make your pitch for for Atlanta. Make your pitch for Atlanta to be the, the permanent home of the college football playoff national championship. Well, I can debate both sides of that. One, obviously, my Atlanta hat, I can I can make that that uh, strong recommendation and and you know have some really good reasoning behind it. You know, when you're looking at a city that's hosted the Olympic Games, will host the World Cup. Uh, probably a semifinal uh, in 26. Uh, we've got the uh, baseball uh, all-star game coming back to 25, probably a Super Bowl in 28, somewhere around there, 28, 29. 
probably another final four before the end of the decade. You know, there's, there's probably no city that will be hosting the number of big time events, uh, nor has the ability to host those type of events better than Atlanta. Um, from a facility standpoint, ease of uh, getting into the city, whether it's by air in the best, biggest airport in the world, or the, uh, you know, the three intersets, interstates that intersect in the middle of downtown with 16,000 hotel rooms downtown in a walkable environment to a lot of the facilities, restaurants, bars, uh, activities like the College Football Hall of Fame Aquarium, um, and the corporate support that we have, uh, you know, from from the great corporate Fortune 500 companies. So, and then you have the Southern hospitality with the people here who really know how to put on events and experience uh, for the for the fans. On the other side, I can debate that you know I think it's good for college football that we do move the game around um, for different experience for the fans, for the players for the coaches, for the, the administration, et cetera. And, you know, one of the things that I'm really excited about in college football, a lot of things I'm not, but one of the things I am excited about is that, you know, having NBC, CBS, ABC, ESPN, and Fox now all broadcasting uh, college football, we've seen the increase in viewership this year. It's only going to get bigger. Um, and then secondly, the 12-team playoff is going to keep more teams and more interest and therefore more attendance in college football because you're going to have 40 teams or more still in the hunt for those 12-team playoffs late in you know October and November. So I think higher viewership, I think more attendance, and I think at the end of the day, that's going to lead to higher uh, fees for TV negotiations in the future, which I hope that at some point that all the conferences get together and go together to negotiate their TV contracts. Because one of the things that I that bothers me about college football is that, you know, we've just seen the loss of 105 degree, 105 year tradition in the Pac-12 because what, 20, 30 million dollars per team? When if you look at the NFL, they signed a $10 billion contract for one year, uh, that which is, translates into $132 million per team before in the NFL before they get ticket sales, concessions, merchandise, sponsorship, et cetera. You know, if we collectively went together as college football, we're the second most favorite sport in this country. We're probably collectively right now before new negotiations about a $3 billion TV uh, all in. If we went together, there's no doubt in my mind with the viewership that we have that, uh, and, the, and the, the reality programming that we provide, uh, that we could be six to seven and a half billion dollars. Well, you take six to seven and a half billion dollars and divide that by the, I'm gonna use an even number, my math's probably wrong, but 75 schools, you know, you're at $100 million per school. Now, all of a sudden, no one's worrying about $20, $30 million, and we still have a Pac-12, and you know, we still have the intersectional rivalries. College football is whole. You know, I think one of the things in the Pac-12 is they're a year late and a dollar short with all of the programming now that we're seeing and, and, and the opportunity for Pac-12 schools 
the old Pac-12, um, to get into the playoff with a 12-team playoff is a lot higher now with a 12-team playoff. So I think if they'd have hung together for another year, they would have stayed together as the Pac-12 and still had access because recruiting would have gotten better because there's more exposure to the game. More teams would have been more successful uh, by high school uh, recruits because they would got it access to the playoffs. And so the Pac-12 would have thrived. College football would have thrived with those schools being still as a member of the Pac-12. So, you know, I, I think we've, we've, we've screwed this up pretty good, you know? Um, and I think that, uh, you know, the problem I have and not to denigrate the presidents, you know, they're running $1.52 billion companies on their campus and they don't have the time or the bandwidth to know what's going on in college football or college athletics. But yet they are the NCAA. They are making the decisions that impact college sports. And it's unfair to them because they don't have the time or the knowledge. And we've put them in a difficult position. Uh, the NCAA has not helped. Uh, they've, they've missed the ball in, in, over numerous times, over numerous years. Uh, and so, you know, we've put ourselves in a position where we don't have a vision of where college athletics or college football is going. And when you don't have a vision, what happens is you have chaos. And what are we living through right now? We're living through chaos. Yeah. And that's not good for anybody. And so, you know, I think the, um, the systems, you know, really, uh, you know, I, I, I've said this for years now, it needs a college conference football commissioner. You know, I look at basketball, Dave Gavitt Jr. is the guy everybody looks through for the NCAA basketball tournament, right? You know, and he has people that, you know, he talks to and meets with, et cetera. We need the same thing for college football, you know? And so you have a commissioner. I would put four commissioners on that board with that, with that commissioner of college football, four ADs, four college coaches and four players. And I would let them sit and start to create, okay, what's the CFP look like? What's the playoff? What's the transfer portal dates? What are the signing dates for high school kids? What's the schedules look like? What's, what's NIL look like? And deal with all those issues and then bring it, you know, to the constituents and say, okay, here's the vision we've created. You know, we right or wrong, et cetera, et cetera. You know, I, there's a lot of problems. I'm not sure there's a lot of people around the table there may be individuals, but I don't know that there's a lot of people around the table from different aspects of the game that are sitting in a room now creating those solutions. Easy to identify problems, but there are two parts of a problem. Identify the problem and then create the solution. I don't think there's people creating solutions right now. It's like I always say, don't present a problem without providing the solution. And that is college football's issue in a nutshell. And it's interesting hearing from people across all different perspectives, yours included, that there is this consensus that the sport has issues. It's very clear that the sport was not intended to operate this way and that we're seeing century-long conferences be destroyed and we're seeing this, this individualistic approach to a sport that needs to be collective. But how do you tell the individuals who are profiting and benefiting more than the others hey, it needs to get to this point 
for you to recognize that we need to act in the collective interest of the sport. That is a really tough place to get to. And it feels like we're close to there, but we're not quite there yet because what you've described works and it makes so much sense to be able to fix the sport and, and to get on board with the TV contracts and all these different things. It still takes people saying, oh, well, you know what? We're going to be willing to do this for the good of everyone else, even though we in the SEC, we in the Big Ten are making more money than everyone else. And we feel like this is all that we have to move forward with instead of creating some sort of super league. So everything that you're bringing up you get, makes You need sense. business people. And unfortunately, yeah. you got a lot of academians talking about this issue. You need some business people who have business experience because, believe it or not, it is a business. They're moving it toward a business. But yet they don't want to agree to that or state that, but it is becoming a business. And if you're going to be in a business, you run it like a business. And you can't, you know, in, in my belief, you know, everything starts with a goal. The goal to me should be provide kids an opportunity, an educational opportunity, number one, a scholarship. Number two, get them a degree. 98% of these kids, you know, I don't care whether it's softball, volleyball, football, basketball, whatever it is, they're not going to get to the pros. And even if you talk about football and they get to the pros, how many years are they lasting? Not many kids get by the third year, which really in the first three years, you're slotted in your salary. You really don't make true generational type of money until you get to the fourth year of your contract and free agency. And there's not a lot of kids that even get by that. So if you took every kid that played college football and you took the kids that played pro, signed pro contracts, and then the kids that got to free agency, you're talking about a minuscule amount of kids, right? So all this collective money and this donor money that's going in to pay for play, and so to speak, NIL, which is supposed to be you work to get that money, which isn't happening, Right. That money, to me, should be for these 98% of these kids or the rest of the kids that when they get done with their pro career, you give them a job. Because that job's for life. You know, that, that career provides them an opportunity to go on from wherever they need to go for the next, you know, 45, 50 years of their life. You know, that's what we should be doing in our collegiate athletics, not NFL light, you know, and, and unfortunately, there's no relationship with the NFL, which makes no sense to me. You know, where, where, who's sitting down week to week with Goodell and the NFL owners saying, hey, we're all vested in this good of college football. You know, how can you guys help us? You know, there's nothing there, right? And, and it doesn't, if you, if you look at the model of the NFL, college football typically follows NFL by 10 to 15 years. And if you look at the NFL owners, they're all partners in each other's business. The sooner the SEC, Big Ten, and I'm not saying they don't right now, but the sooner SEC, Big Ten, ACC, Big 12, should have been Pac-12, all sit together in a room and say, look, we're college football. Let's maximize the potential of college football for the student athletes, for the fans, for the media, for the schools, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, all the stakeholders in the game. Then let's build the mousetrap. That, that makes the most sense for that. Starting with getting the college education for the kids, put a trust fund forward that they have to get the degree to get that money, give them a scholarship for life. If they don't get their degree in four to five years, they can come back anytime, 
give them medical relief and pay their bills for 10 years, 15 or for life, you know, all those things could be done. And now people would look at differently the way the pendulum has swung totally toward the student athlete and it's getting out of whack with all these lawsuits and everything else that's happening in college sports because we've lost our way. We just need an alliance. That's what it all comes down to. Just just an alliance would, would make everything work and everybody would get on the yeah, same I mean, page. You, you can't sit here today and say, oh, geez, this is signing day. Well, now kids are just getting out of, out of final exams. Kids are practicing for bowl games. Kids are transferring. Kids are signing high school. Uh, it's ludicrous what they the, – the organization and the way it's set. If I brought McKinsey in and said, here's college football, they'd look at you like you got five heads and say, who the hell's running this? <laughs> right. I mean, we got to get smarter. We got to get more efficient. We got to get more effective. We got to get back to what are the goals, the realistic goals that we need to drive to help the student athletes get an opportunity, get a degree, get an education, you know, get them money to start their uh, careers, get them a job. And, and that's what we should be doing. Gary, great stuff. Really appreciate the time. Hope you get another thriller this year. It's going to be an awesome game. Looking forward to it. We are too. Thanks so much for having us, Connor. Merry Christmas to you and everybody. Lad of the week. I'm going to start with uh, a guy that I don't want to say he's definitely become one of my guys and admittedly I liked him more after we had him on the show but Alex Golish Alex Golish mm -hmm. the South Florida coach friend of the program he capped off a year one with an absolute beatdown of Syracuse in their bowl game as he said afterwards they beat that you know what great moment I love him man yeah he's the best uh took over a one in 11 team one in 11 team they had four wins in the entire 2020s decade. South Florida did talk about a program that perspective has changed a lot in five years with where they were at when he took over. Um, it, it is very, very different than what we were talking about when it was the Charlie strong days and, and those, some of those teams, you know, the Willie Taggart teams and how quickly they fell off, but man, have they rebounded in a big way. First winning season for them since 2018. We had him on the spring. He's talking about sleeping four hours a night, just trying yeah. to establish that foundation. You realize the grind that it takes to, to get to that place. And for all the people that are, that were dogging South Florida, and they were kind of a punchline this season with the, the, the Bama game, which was obviously, it was a mess for Bama. And I'm not trying to take anything away from what South Florida did. Um, but it, it's still. Unfortunately, a, that, that near loss has actually kind of aged gracefully as it is. Look, they're not three and nine. They're they're not. Three they're and actually nine. A pretty. I joked about Basura. They're not Basura. They're actually a pretty good football team. They have turned into a team that is absolutely worth watching. And uh, yeah, I mean, I'm just happy for him because I, I think he's one of those guys. That if you if you listen to him in that interview, he, and he talks about how atypical of a football journey journey he had growing up in Russia, and then he comes to to the states, and he's this kid who just falls in love with college football, living in New York, and goes to Ohio State, does the whole deal, but. I just respect the crap out of what he has done. And I, I, I continue to say it's not just as simple as being a good play caller in this sport. I think he'd be the first person to tell you that. A lot of other elements that go into this. He just signed the best group of five class of anyone mm -hmm. in the sport too. Just tons of momentum right now for South Florida. Ole Miss is the power five 
ultimate good vibes team this off season. Yep. USF is the group of five ultimate good vibes team this off season. Hopefully we'll have him back on the pod soon to talk about all that momentum, but fun to watch him fun to watch what he has become so quickly. And one of those guys that hopefully you bought stock last year. Yeah. If you guys haven't heard that interview, that's one of my favorite interviews that Connor's ever done. I mean, it goes, I mean, to be a successful college football coach, you almost need to either make up a reality or be incredibly real. And he was in the most real coach I've ever heard. I mean, he, and to take over a situation like USF, and that's where I think Jeff Scott kind of faltered, is that he took the Clemson Dabo made-up reality into USF and said, we're just going to be the best. We're going to be the best. And Golish is like, man, this place is struggling. <laughs> this ain't Tennessee. This is very different. Yeah. Yeah. This is yeah, very yeah, 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 yeah. Like, literally, he said, yeah, like, I was like, dang, like, I've never heard a coach say something like that. He was real. It was true. You have to look at the problem and be honest before you can fix it. That's what he did. Um, so actually, again, you needed like a vacation or something. We're two on the same page right now. My guys, my two lads of the week, because I got one and I went, well, I can't count one of these guys and not the other guy. Um, so number one is going to be Antonio Pierce. So he is the interim head coach for the Las Vegas Raiders. I'll give him a quick shout out. He is a, um, Herm Edwards is Arizona State survivor, just like, uh, just like Jaden Daniels. He has come back. Also a Josh McDaniels survivor. So maybe he hasn't hitched his wagon to the sword as head coaches. Uh, but he has now had a chance as a, as a, uh, an interim coach. And, you know, I'm not even saying, you know, this guy deserves that job necessarily because the Raiders might be a bad starting point just because they're such a dysfunctional organization. But, you know, this is a guy that we all saw with the Giants, you know, when the Super Bowl and stuff. I mean, that felt like the other day. Let's not talk about old we are, but a guy that as adults, as humans, we remember, right? Antonio Pierce, really cool to see him. They beat the Chiefs uh, this week, which was a super duper cool win for them. Uh, and then the college football version of this is where I started uh, is David Braun, the Northwestern head coach. Mm. Now, this is a guy. And that's it's funny because those are, I think, the two situations in college football that you would have said were the most untenable, that just somebody taking over USF and Northwestern. Northwestern with the academic stuff, they had just lost a guy kind of like we were talking about Kirby Smart, you know, a guy that couldn't be fired, really, that was a star player for the school, took the football team to new heights. I mean, um, and, you know, Fitzgerald's a guy that me and you would, like, go back and forth about, but whatever we got to say, was a great coach, left a big mark on Northwestern, but left in disgrace, had a bunch of guys leave. We talked about my lad of the week last time. You know, they lost so much talent, and they weren't even that good of a team, but he was there, honestly. I mean, they were, it was the fact that he took over a bad team that then had a scandal. It wasn't a great yeah. team that went through scandal. It was a bad team that got worse. Dude finished eight and five and beat Utah in a bowl game. I mean, this is a Utah team that you just can't. I mean, how many quality wins and losses has Utah been a part of in the last couple of years? You know, talking about all of these teams out West that we measure against Utah, talking about the Big 12 and how they could be the class of the Big 12 going in. And I looked at that game. I turned it on. It was 0-0 with about two minutes left. I went, this is a Northwestern game. Northwestern's going to win this game. <laughs> you don't see a 0-0 halftime score. They did score going into the half, and I went, well, now it's over with. Which, you know, it's, it's kind of they controlled the game throughout. They played Northwestern football. But to talk about, you know, we talk about Brian Kelly leaving Notre Dame. We talk about, you know, um, Elko at Duke and how hard it is to get around these academic um, uh, uh, safeguards. Same with Vandy, right? It's the schools that want to win at football. Right in the schools that want to be higher academic institutions, and those are schools that want to be higher academic institutions. It's so hard to win there. This guy's eight and five, which would be among one of the better seasons, one of the better seasons, not the best season that Pitts, that Pat Fitzgerald ever had. But got to give David Braun credit, man. Just the most Midwestern dude ever from Wisconsin, which was a college in Minnesota. But you know, when it's your time, like I said, it's like there's no reason to say what was me. Why can't we do this? It's let's look at this cluster of a situation and let's get to work. 
one of the best stories in college football this year is what Northwestern has become. One of the most improbable eight win teams I think we've ever seen at the power five level. I, I yep. really mean that. I, I, if, if you had told me going into this year that Northwestern would be zero and 12, I would have said, yep, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, yep. I could see it with how bad they have been, how bad this team projects. I can't remember what their Vegas over under was. I want to say it was like two and a half. It was yep. really, really low. And if you listen to betting the bulls, which shameless plug, this will go right into our betting the bulls promo. We talked about how you can't really bet against Northwestern at this point. And, and they were, mm-hmm. I think, a touchdown underdog in that game, I want to say, against Utah. But th- sometimes with bowl games like that, you're just thinking about, well, what's that game going to mean to this team to win it? And it's mm-hmm. not so much a question about like, ah, uh, you know, this team doesn't want to be there or anything like that. But just the question with Northwestern capping off the season that began as bad as one can possibly start a season off. A hazing scandal yep. in which your program is gutted your statue head coach. And I say that because they were more likely to build a statue of him than fire him. The oh, your yeah. statue head coach is gone, disgraced his name. And, and you have this situation that is just so unbelievably bad. And you have people like myself that are saying, UTEP, UTEP's going to beat Northwestern lock of the week. And then yep. don't you know it, man, they, they just turned into this very improbable success story and uh, an obvious national coach of the year. Uh, guy David Braun uh, turned out to be just one of those things that is why you play the games. It's why you yep. play the games. You just never know uh, with, with something like that. Even though there are a lot of people like us that kind of out pretty crazy. Yeah. And I mean, he won big 10 coach of the year, narrowly edging out Connor stallions. So really big honor. For him. <laughs> no, no, but uh, honestly, that's huge. The Northwestern coach after that wins big 10 yeah. with Ryan day with parts of Jim Harbaugh present. I think that that is actually huge for that league that they honored this guy. Cause he deserves it. Agreed. hundred percent. Now, I'm the one saying 100% all the time, but yes, 100%. If you haven't listened to Betting the Bulls, you absolutely should. It's been really, really fun so far. We have the first two episodes have already dropped. Again, those are once a week. The third episode, we're previewing all the gambling angles for the college football playoff. Those two games, you guys know Marler. You know Marler has dug into all of this stuff. Bob Wankel just absolutely crushes it for us. That guy is so unbelievably smart. Uh, So that's going to be dropping as well. Three pods for the people this week. We're going to be previewing bowl games with our Thursday, our pod that we're going to record on Thursday. That's actually going to be out later in the day on Thursday. So we'll give people a little bit something. Hopefully that's going to be ready for your drive home on Thursday, getting ready for all these non-Texas A&M bowl games in the SEC. So a lot of stuff still that we're going to dig into with this postseason. If you haven't, leave us a five-star review. Subscribe to our YouTube channel where you can watch every episode of the Saturday Down South podcast, which is presented by Texas Pete. Follow us on the app, formerly known as Twitter, at the SES Pod, at Set Down South, at CGO Guerra, at Go So Hard. Thanks, guys. Talk soon.